Sir Balfour, the team of Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in the program. And in this edition of the program, as he does each week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. No particular note this week, the Cubs, by almost every measure, be it run differential, base runs record, an actual record, the Cubs have acquitted themselves as not merely the best team in the majors currently, but also very possibly since the beginning of the 20th century. That's not an exaggeration. The Cubs currently sport the largest run differential since the 1902 Pittsburgh Pirates. Cameron discusses in some depth a club whose greatest weakness is that their left-handed one-out guy isn't quite as good as he could be. We look in some depth at Dexter Fowler and the recent developments of a player who appeared destined for stardom early on. I also ask a provocative question. Have the Cubs, who again are fantastic, have the Cubs somehow benefited from the early season injury to Kyle Schwarber? Provocative, as I say. We also look at Bryce Harper's 36-pitch streak without swinging, within which streak he walked six times during a single game against the Chicago Cubs. And also on the topic of Boston Red Sox right-hander Stephen Wright, I ask Cameron, when a knuckleballer is at his most effective, what is happening? Or perhaps in reverse, what is it that makes a knuckleballer effective when he's being effective? It's phrased poorly here, but even more poorly in the conversation to follow. Please note that the baseball-specific content of this conversation is preceded by roughly seven minutes of idle chatter regarding flooring options for your home, something for which I will not apologize because I consider it riveting. Perhaps even more riveting is this sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek. You're the sort of person who's ever attempted to buy sports or concert tickets online but then become frustrated by attempting to buy sports or concert tickets online. You'd make a strong candidate to use SeatGeek both personal experience and also this ad copy in front of me suggests that SeatGeek aggregates ticket prices from all around the web into one space, allowing one to get the best deal all the time. And users are able to set alerts for upcoming games and concerts to be notified at such time as the prices of those tickets drop. SeatGeek also provides grades for every ticket based on value, so it's possible to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket pricing market. And using technology born in the 21st century, it's possible to inspect the view from your hypothetical seat before ever stepping inside the stadium or arena or concert hall. And perhaps what's best about SeatGeek is that unlike StubHub, unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the start to the end of the transaction and assesses no fees at checkout, so you'll never be deceived. And for having survived the duration of this message, listeners will be rewarded with a rebate offer Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. That's add a promo code. Enter the promo code Fangraphs, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. And SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Fangraphs today and or at your nearest convenience. Which marks the end of the sponsor's message and the beginning of the rest of our lives and this program. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. Oh, well, I was going to warn you that it might be worse than usual. Oh, you're in your car, I think. I am in my car. What are you doing in there? Uh, well, my nanny had to cover today because my in-laws were not capable of taking care of our kid, but our nanny usually watches another kid on Mondays, so now we have two kids at our house, which is not 
not podcast. Uh, no, it's not. I'm gonna tell you why I think it's, it works a little bit better. I think that because you, you know how you have like a your house is is a manse like. You know how it's like a castle. Manse like. Yeah, like manse, like a mansion, like it's mansion like. Oh, so we're, we're, we're too lazy to say the full word mansion now. We have to I got shorten th- mansion. Good things to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have a, I have a wooden house with wooden walls. Yeah, right. So I think what's well, I guess happened- my walls are wooden. Floors are wooden. Right. Walls are drywall. The, um, my point is that I think that there sometimes the sound bounces around the room. I don't know, I don't know what the actual, like, uh, what the technical name for that is. Acoustics? Yeah, sure. There's like, yeah, the, the acoustics, but the acoustics of your car are actually better. Uh, so I should podcast in my car every week? Sure. Okay. That doesn't sound very comfortable. No, it doesn't. But I'll consider doing it not in my house. Hey, listen, let me ask you about that That floor. Is that solid wood or is that engineered hardwood? No, it's solid wood. Hmm. Did you install yeah. that or was it already in there? Well, I didn't personally do it. But no. uh, when we bought the house, it was a foreclosure. And the house was built in 92, and apparently they decided to, like, make it, like, a floor room for all kinds of different uh, flooring options or a showroom for different flooring options. So, like, the entryway and the dining room had hardwood floors. The living room, family room had carpet, and the kitchen had tile. So it was a melange. Yeah, so we said, screw that, and now we just have hardwoods. There is – I don't necessarily understand – I think there was a period in American history – in American architectural history, when um, when carpeting was very popular. Yeah, it feels like the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and yeah. I don't necessarily understand the draw to it. I guess what because it's well, it's cheap. It's cheap, but you but don't you have to? You, you generally have to replace it. Not I mean, for, for like sand- 20, 20 years or something. Yeah, but it gets dirty, doesn't it? Yeah, but so does hardwood. I guess. What do you? How do you yeah. uh, keep up hardwood? You sand it and finish it again? Uh, well, you can. That's after, like, a really long time. They have, like, hardwood cleaners, so, you know, you have to, like, basically mop your floor, but not with, like, soap and water. It's, you know, water and wood, not big fans of each other. I think if you have pet pets, I yeah. think 20 years is a long time for a carpet. It could be true. Yeah. Uh, kids, too, probably. But, yeah, yeah I mean, true. I think uh, having gone through a house remodel, and uh, this is my second house, uh, and I guess I'm going on my third when we relocate later this year, uh, I am aware of the different costs of flooring options, and I will say carpet significantly the cheapest option by a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you have to replace it regularly, you, it's still cheaper. Really? But it looks, you know, crappy a lot of the times. I think it does. I think it does. And also, uh, what do you think about engineered hardwood? I'm a fan. We put uh, some, uh, well, it's not engineered hardwood, but like the click flooring. Uh, we put that in our basement uh, for the, like the playroom for Drew. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the, no, just for those listening, the basement is not where I live. Mm-hmm. I do not live in my own basement. That's my kid's basement. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we, we like the, the kind of engineered uh, whatever, like the not quite as expensive as hardwood but still looks decent. So yeah, it right. seems to have come a long way. Now you, why, why did you call it not engineered hardwood? Why did you call it something different? Well, they have like different kinds. So, like you know, there's uh, laminate flooring, which is not in the engineered hardwood, but it can also look similar. It's just uh, that's essentially just a photograph of it, right? Of yeah, basically, they take a picture of, of wood and stick it on top of uh, some kind yeah. of vinyl substance. But you can't but, really. Like, vinyl used to look terrible. Like if you have vinyl from like the 90s in your home, it probably looks really terrible. But nowadays, vinyl actually looks pretty good. And you know what I realized recently, or what I learned, is that linoleum isn't vinyl. Or right. frequently, I think they're frequently confused, though. Yes. Linoleum, I will say, if you have to remove it. Because when I took the tile up from our kitchen, 
uh, I found linoleum underneath of it. <laughs> they were like, yeah, we're going to like layer the flooring in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really a pain in the rear to get, because it's like glued down usually. And it was real linoleum or it was vinyl? That was real. Oh, okay. Linoleum is actually made from, from linseed. That no. makes sense, considering the first three letters of each word. Yeah, it's actually a naturally occurring material. So there You know, is. if you were going to shorten a word in this conversation, it should have been linoleum and not mansion. What do you think about, uh, last thing I'll ask you about on uh, flooring options, what do you think and or know about bamboo? Uh, it's expensive, but green. So if you're into paying a lot of money to feel good about your environmental choices, which mm-hmm. I believe you are, then it's a uh, good option. For you. Yeah, on a small scale. I'm not going to, yeah. Um, but if you want to pay a little bit of money anyway, and if you want to feel good about your uh, footprint on Earth, I believe bamboo is one of the greenest options. Because what? Because it's it's very hard, and also, it, I mean, the grass itself grows back very quickly, right? There's a lot of bamboo in this world. Yeah, we're, yeah, not, we're not running out of bamboo anytime. Soon. Here's a question though: Isn't a lot of it kind? Of, isn't a lot of it in China? It is. Yes. All right. But you know, if, I I would say if you don't want to have made in China products, you better learn how to make your own stuff. That's true. Yeah, I know. I would probably probably if I it would it would just be a cursory glance even just around this room or for example yeah. at the microphone into which I'm speaking. Yeah, right, yeah. I think Basically, be, everything you're using right now probably was made pretty China. damnable quick. Or Actually, Asia. this computer is definitely made in China. I remember following it as it was being shipped from China. What uh what kind of car did you end up buying last year? <laughs> we can move on to a different topic. <laughs> I guess I was a, it was a uh, Nissan Versa Note. Uh, I wonder how many of that was made in China. I'm going to guess a lot of it. A lot of it. Maybe some of it's made in Asia, necessarily. It doesn't have to be China. Well, Japan, yeah. Japan. Right. I'm on board. Like, a lot of like the, the made in China shorthand is now just shorthand for, or the made in China term is now shorthand for the Asian region because a lot of the other countries in that area have realized that China made a lot of money by making stuff. Yeah, but isn't it because China doesn't have any regulations? That helps if you can yeah, just like I think that helps a lot. the products and be like, hey, we're going to stick the dead bones of our, uh, you know, three-year-old children who've been making this into our product that'll save on materials. Yeah, I think if you don't have any environmental or civil rights yeah. laws, then it's right. easier to you, produce. You can really make stuff cheap if you don't care <laughs> yeah, about books. It's true. All right. Uh, n- not really a laughing matter, but guess what? This is not about international trade, typically. Ah, uh, that's too bad. Uh, I was I was going to make it a segue into... Uh, it's not a trade about others about domestic trades between players, but that's not really what we're going to talk about at all. So you're going to segue into something that, like, we're not talking about. Oh, it's terrible. The, the Cubs you have uh, discussed today in, in the electronic pages, and uh, I suppose what, what what's most notable for them. Well, you, you can start here, right? And I know that this is a this is sort of an outdated form of of the Pythagorean theorem, right? But I I believe that um, the Pythagorean, as applied to baseball, Pythagorean win percentage. Uh, I believe on the Cubs broadcast yesterday they cited, as they have had reason to, uh, for many reasons recently, they cited the Cubs differential, run differential. Run, run differential, yeah. Yeah, I think it's the largest. I think as they said, it's the largest since the 1902 Pittsburgh Pirates. Through this point in the season. Through this point in the season, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and of course, as as uh, Len Casper and Jim Deshays noted, that was before the World Series. 1903 yeah. was the first World Series. So since the World Series has existed, this is the best team by run differential through, like, you know, mid-May. I mean, I think, what, they're outscoring their opponents by three and a half runs a game. There are teams in baseball that aren't scoring three and a half runs a game. So, like, yeah, this is, uh, they're demolishing people. I think this is, like, a, you know, probably the most dominant 
stretch we've seen since what the '85 Tigers started 35 and five, I think. Um, but even they weren't, you know, beating their opponents by three and a half runs a game. This is the most dominant 30 game stretch to start a season we've seen, and you know, since our grandfathers were born. Right. Yeah, and Unless fact, you have a really old grandfather. You have to have a pretty old grandfather. Uh, I'm a 36 year old person with a 95 year old grandfather, and he was born so he was born 1921. So you'd have to be. I would say at least 20 years older than me. You have to be in your 50s now, I think, for your grandfather. Not even to have seen it, just for to have been alive. And let's be honest. There are no 50-year-olds listening to this podcast. They really got annoyed with that whole international trade, and they turned it off. They did. They, um, what, uh, They're listening to hardcore history right now. What I want to know is this. Um, you know, we just mentioned run differential, but, of course, uh, run runs um, runs are, uh, are influenced to some degree by sequencing. Yep. Uh, what do we know about the Cubs' base runs record as it relates to their record? So their run differential is slightly inflated in the sense that I think uh, what their, their run differential is, I think, plus 102 right now, or 104, something like that. Their expected run differential based on base runs, so you take out the sequencing aspect of it, I think is like plus 87. So, you know, it's like an extra 20, 15, 20 runs uh, that we say they shouldn't have, except for... Uh, I think we've shown and noticed that base runs probably has a little bit of a weakness when it comes to teams that are really good at uh, advancing on the base paths. So, like, the Rangers last year were one of the best base running teams in baseball. Uh, the Royals have been really a good base running team the last few years. And these are teams that have shown that they can slightly outperform their base runs, probably because base runs uh, doesn't have a component in it for runner advancement. It basically assumes that every team is going to be able to score uh, runs at a proportional rate based on how they hit. And there's nothing in there that says, oh, by the way, these guys are actually really fast. The Cubs so far, the best base running team in baseball by a mile. So we maybe would expect them to outperform their base runs on offense. Um, so I think if we said, you know, based on their expected run differential, uh, it probably should be in the, you know, plus 90 to plus 95 range instead of the, you know, plus 104. But it's not like they're wildly outperforming based on clutch hitting. How difficult would it be to add uh, some sort of base running component to base runs? Difficult. <laughs> I think the the trick is with base runs is it's um, the the kind of run scoring component of the formula um, is not easily set up to where you just add in another variable and build. It's not a regression. It's not one of these where you do like 0.8 times this, 0.7 times that. It's not like a, a linear weights formula. Um, so because it uh, requires the kind of interdependency of events, just adding one extra variable and saying like, oh yeah, if you pull this number. Um, you make an adjustment. Also, one of the nice things about base runs, it works for all of history um, because it's not based on, you know, modern stats. And so a lot of the, the base running metrics we have only go back to uh, kind of right. the play-by-play play play database. Um, and then so if you're going to say, okay, we don't actually know who went first to third in 1935, uh, and we create a formula that includes that, then we have different base runs formulas for, you know, pre-play-by-play play times versus current times. What do we know about the correlation? I mean, this is sort of a throwaway question, but what do we know about the correlation between either uh, between like stolen base rate? That's so maybe stolen base, stolen base, uh, yeah, like stolen base success rate, and the team's overall base running metrics. Is it high? Uh, it's pretty pretty high. I mean, I think uh, you know stolen bases is obviously a func- is a, a component of the base running metric, right? right. So you basically have stolen base runs, and you have 
what we call ultimate base running, which Mitchell Lichtman uh, named because he had ultimate zone rating, so he, he likes the word ultimate, I guess. Mm-hmm. But that's basically runner advancement on non-steals, so, you know, first to third on a single, second to home on a single, first to home on a double, that kind of thing. Um, and then you have gra- double play avoidance. Those are kind of like the three functions of the base running metric we have on Fangraphs. So stolen base success rate is one of those three components, uh, and I think it's the largest of the three for most players, uh, at least guys who attempt steals. So like Billy Hamilton or something will get the most value out of his stolen base totals. Um, so my guess would be like it's probably uh, you know eyeballing it or or kind of spitballing. I guess is maybe like sixty to seventy percent base stealing, and then like twenty twenty five percent runner advancement on non steals, and like five percent double play avoidance. And then do you think that do you think that players who are who have a, a strong stolen base record also are the best probably at advancing? Yes, to a degree. So, uh, so guys like Billy Hamilton who are just like really fast, they have a big advantage, right? It's a lot easier to go. Like Billy Hamilton last week scored from first on a single. Yeah, I saw that. That was crazy. That was, that was like, that was insane and no one else in baseball can do that because they're just not as fast as Billy Hamilton. But I think what we have seen is there absolutely is some kind of base running skill that isn't just speed that guys you wouldn't necessarily expect to be really good base runners. I think like Chris Bryant, Ian Kinsler, um, some of these guys who aren't burners uh, turn out to be really good base runners. Because uh, Chase Utley for a long time was a really excellent runner. Um, these guys just kind of are very good at taking leads and and reading balls and uh, you know knowing when to challenge you know an outfield arm on a play. They seem to be very good decision makers on the bases, even if they're not the fastest guys in the world. You know, uh, for, I, I think for some time I don't I don't know if it uh, carried over to last year as well. The, uh, Dexter Fowler uh, Fowler mm-hmm. of those uh, Chicago Cubs. He was another. He he had sort of a, a weird relationship, right? Because he was not a particularly good base dealer. Yeah, uh, he was but an excellent he, base runner. Yeah, right. He's been. I mean, he's been enigmatic um, for a large portion. He's he's always been a decent player without excellent base stealing numbers and without yeah. fielding metrics. He's been about right. average. Yeah. Um, but I think that looking at him, um, in in you know his physical tools, you would always expect that he would be much more dynamic in the field and um, stealing bases. And, I mean, it's possible that that's actually come to fruition uh, this year just by way of some some of the ways he's being utilized. Yeah, Fowler is one of maybe the most interesting cases if we were going to look at uh, like kind of potential based on raw talent versus performance uh, and kind of how coaching and player development goes along with that. Not saying that the Rockies necessarily let Dexter Fowler down, but this is a guy who coming up through the minor leagues was expected to be one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball when he got to the big leagues. Um, and I think he was stealing a ton of bases in the minor leagues at a, you know, not necessarily high success rates, but it was at least showing that he could, you know, steal at reasonable rates and in high volume. And then in Colorado, he was a uh, poor defender, uh, and then I think we've seen even you know the last couple of years um, has not graded out well even after leaving Colorado and has not been a successful base stealer, but is obviously a very good base runner in non-stealing situations. So you have to wonder like how much of this like you know the Cubs as August Fagerstrom has wrote and written um, moved Fowler back, and so far it seems to be helping his defensive performance. Um, I think if you had potentially had Fowler come into the league ten years later uh, and and in a different player development environment. Uh, where there was more data and perhaps more information about how he could best use his skills, perhaps Dexter Fowler becomes a four or five win player rather than being a guy that scouts always really liked in the metrics said this guy isn't performing as well as his tools would suggest. Yeah, he also had some like like strangely old player type skills. Right, lots started, of walks. Yeah. yeah, lots of. I mean, he was up in the twelve thirteen percent range. 
Yeah. You know, well, with also, um, I guess, more strikeouts than league average as well. Yeah, right. Um, He's a weird player. And, like, he came up as a leadoff hitter, but then he strikes out too much to be kind of a prototypical leadoff guy. Um, and hit for a little bit more power than you necessarily expect from a leadoff. It's like he's not that slap hitting center fielder that, you know, kind of was the, uh, the, the main leadoff hitter type for 50, 50 years in baseball. Uh, but he's, you know, really good at getting on base, which is basically what you want in a leadoff hitter. Do you think he's gonna age well, if you had to guess? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not gonna expect him to, like, be playing well when he's 40. Like, no one in baseball ages all that well anymore like uh right. we've certainly seen the game get younger but i think when you look at like good athletes and it seems like fowler probably does have some raw skills that maybe haven't uh, been fully developed yet maybe the cubs will help kind of make him the best player he's been before or better than he was before i wouldn't be surprised if the second half of fowler's career was better than we would expect for a guy who was basically an average player in his 20s right now you looked at a number of uh, other clubs that didn't have weaknesses, right? And that's yeah. and that's kind of that's one of the hallmarks of this this Cubs team. What it's like above average pitching, above average um, not above average, great, but great. great in everything. So everything's great. Everything's great. Great great base running, uh, yeah. great power on contact, what great strikeout avoidance, great yeah. patience, etc. Yeah. What's generally it's probably not surprising, but what is generally the fate of these sort of clubs? <laughs> These teams win a lot of games. <laughs> okay. If you're just really good at everything, you don't lose. Uh, and I think it's it's not a coincidence that the 2001 Mariners and the 98 Yankees, who are the two winningest teams of all time in the regular season, uh, basically showed up on this list as well, and, and in not two different ways than what the Cubs are playing right now. I mean, obviously we expect a team that's 24-6 and six and has a 24-6 and six base runs record to be playing really well, but it's not like the those, you know, that Yankees team didn't put up a 140 WRC plus or something. They put up a 116 WRC plus, uh, which is what the Cubs have now. I think the Cubs are 115 or something. But, so basically the Cubs are hitting like the mid-90s Yankees. They're fielding like the, you know, 2015 Royals, and they're pitching like the 2015 Mets. So like you basically just take like all the best components you could find and put them together, and you have a team that goes 24 and six. And um, a question because it's always interesting when you bring up the, that 2001 Mariners team because they won so many games during the regular season. Yeah. But and then what was their playoff? I know they didn't make it to the World Series. They lost in the ALCS. They lost in the ALCS. Do you have a, do you have a sense that there was a different way in that that, that team could have been constructed? that would have allowed them to succeed, or is that just the randomness of the playoffs at work? So I think the thing that uh, is generally considered to be true about that team is it was um, a team that was weak in the starting rotation. So like that, I think that year they had what, uh, Freddy Garcia uh, was their best pitcher, but then they followed him up with Aaron Seeley and Paul Abbott. Jamie, uh, was, was Jamie Moyer around at that time? Uh, I think Jamie Moyer was still on the team. Right? It was like it was you know, a bunch of pitch to contact. John Halama? Uh, uh, yeah, he, so he came over in the Randy Johnson trade, so I don't, he might have been in the bullpen at that okay. point. Right. I don't remember if he was in the rotation or not, because he wasn't very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a starting rotation that was basically throw strikes and let our amazing defense go get everything, kind of like what the Royals have done the last couple of years. Um, so the 2001 Mariners were like the recent iteration of the Royals, just with a great offense instead of a mediocre offense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how they won 116 games, and when you get to this, the, the postseason, um, Having a really good dominant starting pitcher is very helpful, as we've seen. You can you can throw your ace more times than you can in the regular season. That team didn't really have a dominant number one starter, and so I think if you were going to look at it and be like, what was the potential reason that a 116 win team bombed out in the playoffs? It could have been that they were built 
for the long haul by having a bunch of fine starting pitching and a really good bullpen, uh, but they didn't have that one guy who you're just going to say, okay, Madison Bumgarner, carry us to the World Series. And I know this is uh, looking quite far ahead, but th- they are a team that does have, I think, close to a 70% chance of winning the division already, the Cubs. Yeah. Yeah. What? How is this? How well is this team constructed for the postseason currently? I mean, I think you could probably look and say that they could use another relief pitcher, probably a left-hander. Uh, so Travis Wood, I think, is uh, has historically been good against lefties, but he's not pitching that well to start the year and not inspiring a ton of confidence. Clayton Richard is not that great. So uh, if you're going to look at the bullpen and say, is there a shutdown lefty down there? Probably not. Uh, the good news is that Aroldis Chapman might be available in a couple weeks, and if they really want to get ridiculous, they could add him as their shutdown left-hander. Wait, why is he, why is Chapman going to be ready? Well, oh, the because Yankees the Yankees are Yankees, because the Yankees, Yankees are in last place. They're pretty bad. Yeah. Are they actually bad, or have they just played bad? I think they're mediocre with some bad results. So, like Luis Severino is not going to run a six and a half ERA all year, but also the starting rotation doesn't have a lot of depth to it. And if Luis Severino needs more time in the minor leagues, they don't really have anyone good to replace him. And they already are, what, like 11-19 and 19 or something? Yeah, right. So, like, uh, it's not that the Yankees are an atrocious team. I think, like, they're a 500-ish team that got off to a bad start. But, you know, that 500-ish of the teams that get off to bad starts that have closers and walkiers, uh, probably potential trade partners. How many games, then, is Raldis Chapman? By the way, I want to say it's hard sometimes to separate when you're talking about the player and then some of the... Uh, elements that sur- that surround him yeah. as a person, but sure. I'm going to ignore those for the moment because this is a conversation about the game on the field. Is it? Can I make I, that? You can make that statement. Okay. Yeah. How, how many games will Aroldis Chapman? Not not actually. How many will he appear in? Like for how many games will he be on their 25 men roster? I'm gonna guess two months. So I think yeah. he got activated today. So, or last night, for those listening to this podcast. Uh, so what did it come out? May 9th. So you're basically looking at like, maybe, maybe, I don't know, 75 days, something like that. That'll take you up to, towards the deadline. Um, the Yankees aren't historically sellers, so they might decide to hang on to Chapman, just make him a qualifying offer, which he'd almost certainly reject and take the pick. Uh, that's a possibility, especially if there aren't a lot of teams pounding down the door because of Chapman's off-field uh, situation, um, or I guess reputation maybe. Uh, but I would assume that if the Yankees are still floundering around in July and uh, look like they're you know seven, eight games out of the wild card race, they would say, okay, look, there's going to be a bunch of teams who could really use Rolls Chapman in July. Uh, maybe we'll put him on the market. Uh, let me ask this question. The, the Cubs, I think you, as you've, you've noted in a number of different ways, really one of the best teams since whatever date you want to choose, right? Yeah, they're uh, good. Both in terms of the underlying skills and then also in terms of results. They really have it all at this point. Yeah. And if your one weakness is you could use a, a better left-handed reliever, yeah, right. You're, you you're really addressed. Okay. You really addressed everything. Good job. And it's not like I mean Travis Wood actually has a history of being pretty good against lefties. So it's not like they have no one there. It's not like their 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 left-handed specialist is garbage. It's just that they could use a better one. You could use a better one, right? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> we also know that this team lost Kyle Schwarber what, like yeah. just days into the season. Right. Kyle Schwarber, a very promising bat with probably some defensive limitations. Yeah. Uh, re, you know. Confined to an outfield corner, definitely probably should be playing first base, except for the fact that really one of the best hitters in the major league already plays first base for the for the Cubs. Right. Um, is there any reason to think, is there any way of looking at it to say that this club has somehow benefited from the departure of Kyle Schwarber? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I know the hype around Kyle Schwarber was pretty high going into the season based on some of the home runs he hit last year and, and kind of the allure of power. But I think the reality is Schwarber was always going to be, at least this year, probably an average at best player. Uh, he You know, he strikes out a decent amount. Um, he wasn't going to be a great defender. He wasn't going to be a great base runner. It's not like Schwarber was a four-win player that they lost. They probably lost a two-ish win player, and they replaced him. So far, with a little bit more Jorge Soler, who's been bad, certainly, but a lot more Tommy LaStella and Matt Caesar and Javier Baez, all of whom have been amazing. And the ability to shift Chris Bryant to the outfield uh, probably has helped their defense a decent amount. Um, and so I think if you're looking at it and saying, okay, Schwarber was going to be a defensive negative and a base running negative who hit some, but Caesar and LaStella and Baez, not that LaStella is like a defensive wizard himself, but these guys are better defensive players and allow the Cubs to put out a better defensive alignment. And they've hit, like, you know, Mike Trout combined. I think uh, Caesar's got, like, a 188 WRC plus. The Stell's at 178. Um, you know, when you're hitting that well and you're providing a defensive upgrade, it's hard to argue that Schwarber would have been better for the Cubs to this point than those guys have been. Certainly, you don't expect these guys to keep playing that well, and it's not that we're saying that this team is better without Kyle Schwarber. But to this point, through the first 30 games, they haven't missed it. Uh, the um, Len Casper and Jim Deshaies also noted the sort of uh, the positional flexibility yeah. surrounding a lot of the players on this Cubs team. Right. And I suppose there are two parts to that, right? You need you need players who are physically capable, or you know, of playing another, you know, multiple positions well. So for example, we've seen uh, Chris Bryant, uh, Bryant play third and left, and um, uh, Javier Baez, I, I don't know if he's only played, what does he play third, but he's certainly capable of playing short and second as well. Right, and he's uh, played some outfield. He's played some outfield, okay. Um, but you also need players who are willing to do that. Correct. And um, I would assume that this is probably, that's it's probably always going to be the case that younger players are more willing to be flexible. Uh, but, of course, they have another player in, in Ben Zobrist who's moved around basically his entire career and probably right. would not be averse to that, and, and Jason Hayward has definitely played center already this year, um, which he played a bunch of that for the Cardinals last year, but um, it's not traditionally been his main position in, in the majors. Um, do we know, uh, I guess, I mean, they do possess, uh, possess positional flexibility. Do we know what sort of advantage that, that creates and what, um, what sort of conditions are necessary for that to happen? I mean, Joe Batten's probably more capable of getting this kind of buy-in than any other manager in baseball, not only because of his kind of success in winning, uh, where, which brings credibility, but also just the fact that players really like him. And so uh, I think Madden is able to go to guys like Hayward or uh, Baez or whoever and say, hey, look, we're going to move you around the field, and then not necessarily see it as like, oh, I'm being turned into a utility player, which on another team, or in most teams probably, once you start getting moved off of a position and you start bouncing around, you're no longer a starter, you're kind of a, a bench guy, and so I think Madden probably has the ability, or at least the credibility, to go to a player and say, look, we're going to move you around, but don't take this as an, you know, a loss of your position. You're not losing a job, we're just going to play you in different spots sometimes. Um, so I think that's one of the factors that allows Madden to be a really good manager, is that players will do things for him more easily than they might do for another manager. Uh, but I think also the Cubs front office has targeted players like this for a reason, right? So, like, heading into the winter, um, there was a lot of thought that the Cubs would just spend really big on their starting rotation, and there was a lot of expectation they would sign David Price, and um, that was kind of the 
traditional way they could have gone is like, hey, let's just add more pitching and kind of do what, you know, the Tigers have always done is try and win with hitting and pitching and, and you know, forget everything else. But the Cubs basically said, look, we, we think we're better off with Zobrist and Jason Hayward, and then we'll sign John Lackey as a decent starting pitcher. Um, and I think the, the Cubs philosophy prioritizes um, versatility and depth and saying, look, if we, if we have an injury, uh, we don't necessarily think we can go get, you know, another guy who's going to be able to come in and fill this hole as easily as we can go get an arm at the, at the deadline because there's always arms available at the deadline. So I think that the Cubs built a roster that Joe Madden could use. Um, so there's probably some synergy there between kind of the front office's values and then the manager's ability to do it. Okay. I want to, um, I want to make sure we cover a couple other things here. The, the Cubs just finished playing the Washington Nationals. Yeah. Uh, which club? Um, in, uh, I don't know if they played them as much as they beat them. They, they crushed them. Yeah. They, now they, um, the Nationals employ Bryce Harper, of course, one yeah. of the the best young talents in the game. <clears throat> I think uh, I quote Phil Rogers, MLB.com's yeah. Phil Rogers, when I say yeah. that Bryce Harper uh, yesterday, I guess, or yesterday for us Sunday. Uh, well, he walked. I can tell you, he walked six times. Yeah. And he took uh, twenty, faced twenty-seven pitches. Only two of which were strikes, and he hasn't he hadn't swung at any of the last thirty six pitches he'd seen. That's crazy. Yeah, that seems like a lot of pitches to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because well, what's a typical swing rate in the majors? Forty four percent, I think forty five percent, something like that. Okay, right. So if so, if it's like forty five percent, if yeah. even if Harper swung at all the next sixty five pitches, <laughs> yeah, he would still be below would, average. I mean, he would, well, no, he'd still be he'd be above average. But like, that's the thing is like. Like it's he'd be close he'd be close yeah. to average, right? Um, because he hasn't swung it over 35 pitches in a row. Uh, now one uh, of course um, there, there's been a lot of conversation and, and analysis on the topic of protection. Yeah. Um, and there's some suggestion I think that it's actually the player that becomes before you, for example, it could be the one who protects you as opposed to the one that bats after you. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, so that's, uh, context is maybe why Harper's not seeing p- strikes, or maybe it's also just the fact that Harper's batting eyes become so specific, um, and pitchers are so concerned with him that they're not going to throw where he wants it, and where he wants it is in the strike zone, and where they throw it is out of the strike zone. Yeah, but I think we saw a fascinating experiment this weekend where Joe Madden basically wanted to test how much, uh, he could get away with not pitching to Bryce Harper, and how much the Nationals would hurt him for it. Uh, we basically saw this with Barry Bonds in his prime back when he was with the Giants when he was walked 220, 230 times a year is other teams were just saying, like, you've reached a level at which the marginal difference between you and the guy behind you, we don't think it makes sense to pitch to you. Um, Harper isn't at Bonds' level, but also he has a weak supporting cast behind him. Ryan Zimmerman, I think, is their current uh, cleanup hitter, and Ryan Zimmerman is um, not very good anymore. Uh, three years ago, Ryan Zimmerman would have been a very good cleanup hitter, but not not so much today. Um, and so I think what we're kind of seeing is uh, the Cubs experimenting with uh, how much they can get Harper to chase, how he will respond to the style of pitching. I wouldn't expect them to do this to them in the postseason, um, because I think by the time the postseason rolls around that the Nationals will have a different supporting cast around him. Uh, at the very least, I think you'll see you know, internal options replacing Danny Espinosa, so Trey Turner will come up. Um, you'll probably... Uh, have a healthy Ben Revere, or uh, hopefully for the Nationals, I guess you'll have a ho- healthy Ben Revere. Um, so you, the top of the order should be somewhat better. They might move Daniel Murphy up if they make a trade for a guy like Ryan Braun, as I suggested last week. So you could potentially have better hitters in front of him and behind him. Uh, but there is a question of uh, kind of Harper's 
willingness to play into all this, and I think what we've seen is like most hitters probably wouldn't do what Bryce Harper did, taking 36 straight pitches. But he has matured as a hitter, and I think he realizes that this strategy isn't the end of the world for his team, just as like Bonds' Giants teams were excellent in part because Bonds was getting on base 65% of the time, and you know the hitters behind him weren't as good but could still knock him in because he was on base. Uh, Harper has learned that, look, if he's on base all the time, Occasionally, Zimmerman and Worth and Murphy and these guys are going to knock him in, and his team will score runs. Right, and if you if they're not knocking people in, if they're not getting base hits, then the team's not going to win anyway. I mean, if they're batting zero, for example. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, like uh, I think what like one of the situations where Harper was walked late in the game yesterday, there was runners at first and second, uh, so they walked Harper to basically load the bases. There's almost no hitter who's so good that you don't. That you're like that having him walked to load the bases is a bad outcome for your team. Like uh, the the performance of even an average hitter in a bases loaded situation where the pitcher has to throw strikes because now there's nowhere to put the next guy. Um, you know, it's not so easy for the defense to shift or you know run the kind of things that allow uh, pitchers to perform well with the bases empty. Um, even walking Harper, uh, as good as Harper is, to load the bases is probably not a great outcome for the pitching team. Yeah, can you remind us again where the break-even points are for, uh, you know, for when uh, the intentional base and balls becomes uh, um, an optimal strategy? Yeah, so I think Mitchell Lichtman uh, has done actually a decent amount of work on this, and uh, there's a good chapter in the book, which was published, whatever, 2002, so we're kind of in the time when Bonds was kind of breaking all the records for walks. Um, there was a lot of discussion about it back then. And Bonds basically got to a level to where it probably made sense to walk him as often as they did, or at least close to as often as they did. But I think we should reiterate, like, Harper is not Bonds. Like, Harper is great for what we have now, but the offensive run environment is a lot lower. And uh, Bryce Harper is just not, you know, uh, steroid-fueled Barry Bonds at this point. And so walking him every time he comes to the plate is uh, a suboptimal strategy. I think, like, the, the research has basically shown that you need something like a 200, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think it's like a 200-point gap in expected Woba uh, in order to justify an intentional walk in most situations. Obviously, this isn't the case if there's like a runner on third and first base is open with two outs or something. Uh, but in, in like a normal situation, to put a guy on base and to put yourself in trouble or the pitcher has to pitch out of a jam and you can't position yourself and, uh, you know, so you... Uh, I think you need something like a 200-point Woba difference. And so if Harper's a 390 or 410 or whatever expected Woba against a certain pitcher, you would need the next guy to be like a 210 Woba guy, which is, you know, almost a pitcher. Okay. So, yeah, so basically if the pitcher's coming up next. Right. In a normal situation, uh, you generally don't want to issue intentional walks as often as managers do. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, briefly, I suppose it makes sense to address David Price. Um, who's pitching poorly? I'd like to to okay. Can we address it like this? David Price stopped pitching poorly. Well, no, but I guess was well, so Owen Watson wrote um, a, a good piece about it today and suggested that uh, there really does uh, not a lot about what has happened uh, to suggest that David Price will be uh, will be much different than he has been in the past going forward. Yeah, but there's some like so his velocity is down a yeah. little bit. Uh, and his release point is up a little bit. Uh, so there are indicators that he is doing things physically differently, but I think the magnitude of the change is not uh, represented by the magnitude of the difference in results. Like, you would look at it and be like, oh, he lost a mile an hour to his fastball, and his arm slot went up a little bit. Maybe instead of a 2.8 ERA guy, he's a 3.2 ERA guy. Not Now he's a 6.5 ERA guy. Right. Now, I want to talk about Price in the context a little bit of Stephen Wright. 
Yeah. Right. So who's been really good? Yeah. So David Price, uh, still decent indicator, perf- you know, uh, fielding independent numbers, but yeah. is allowing a lot of runs. Right. <clears throat> uh, St- Stephen Wright is always going to be an exception to most rules because, uh, including I think gravity, or <laughs> um, because he throws a knuckleball. He has been. I think he's. He must have one of the best ERAs right now, um, like adjusted ERAs among all qualifiers at this point. Yeah, it's like one three or something. Right, but his xFIP is like almost exactly league average. So I guess here's the question: when a knuckleball, when a knuckleballer is pitching well, um, what is happening? Or you know, asked slightly differently, what is it that allows a knuckleballer to succeed when it when when he is succeeding? Yeah, so I think even when Dip's theory first came out, uh, when Boris McCracken wrote his piece, what, 15 years ago, and said, look, pitchers have no control or almost no control over the results of batted balls, one of the very first exceptions people found was knuckleballs. They basically looked at, like, uh, Charlie Huff and uh, the Wilhelms and kind of the knuckleballers throughout history, because there used to be a lot of them, right? Like, they're rare now, but it has been historically normal for there to be knuckleballers in the league, Tim Wakefield. Or for, um, or for guys to have a knuckleball in an, in an otherwise you know, more traditional um, traditional repertoire. Right, exactly. I mean, it's just one of their pitches. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can easily look at history and be like, look, knuckleballers do not conform to this league average Babbitt. Like, it just doesn't, the data does not suggest that that's true at all. So they were like the first outlier that was identified. It's like, yeah, maybe for normal traditional pitches, this could be true, but it's not true for knuckleballers. And I think what we've seen is um, when Ari Dickey was going really well, um, Wakefield, obviously, um, the recent guys have lived off of weak contact. And so basically it seems like, uh, we're not major league hitters, we haven't stood in against knuckleball, but it seems like the lack of movement from a knuckleball uh, makes it very difficult for hitters to kind of swing on a level plane uh, where they get a really good square contact and hit lots of line drives. So like even when they're swinging at strikes, there's a lot of mishit balls, pop-ups, weak rounders, um, and this is how knuckleballers live. They don't strike you out necessarily. They're not pitching out of the strike zone because if you're pitching out of the strike zone, it's easy to not swing at the knuckleball. So they're basically trying to throw as many strikes as possible, get you to swing at those strikes, and just make lame, weak contact. And this is how knuckleballers live. It's very different than how every other type of pitcher lives who tries to get ahead of you and get you to chase a pitch out of the zone for a swing and a miss. Uh, knuckleballers don't really do that, which is why they don't get a lot of strikeouts usually. Um, and so I think with right... Uh, we, what we don't really know is how well he'll be able to throw strikes consistently. This seems to be like the, the variable that comes and goes. Uh, but so far, he's throwing enough strikes to be very good. Right. Yeah. And I, and it, I mean, does a good, does knuckleballer in order to be successful, like to post a, uh, an ERA that's better than average, does he need to at least have some sort of baseline of strikeout and walks? Or, you know, I mean, like a strikeout it, rate? It's very difficult to be really good if you're, like, not striking out more guys than you walk. But I think, like, Chris Young is probably the best comparison for a non-knuckleballer who's lived off weak contact, and he, you know, he throws a mid-80s fastball from a 6'10 arm slot, so he's a not a, necessarily a traditional pitcher anyway. But I think Chris Young's walk to strikeout rates the last couple of years have been close to one, and he's still been an effective pitcher um, because he's generates so many infield flies and just a lot of weak contact. Uh but then Chris Young this year has been terrible. And so if you're not probably above like a 1.5 strikeout to walk ratio, you're kind of living in that thin line where if the knuckleball isn't floating just perfectly that day, you're going to kind of suck. And you probably, I think when you see like Wakefield and Dickey and some of the more successful recent knuckleballers, they've been around that 2 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. And then the walk, the weak contact has kind of elevated them into um, performing better than you'd expect based on their fit. Right. I like the, uh, yeah, I like the use of uh, Chris Young. He's like a, um, 
he's like a gateway drug to the knuckleball. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't have a knuckleball, but you kind of want to like act like one, be six <laughs> ten and throw eighty. All right. Last question. Um, we we talked about the positional flexibility on the Chicago Cubs. Chicago Cubs, of course, are one of the more progressive. Uh, uh, possess one of the more progressive front offices in the majors. Another of the more progressive front offices is uh, the Houston Astros, who have recently who have recently optioned Evan Gaddis yeah. to Double A so that he could essentially become a catcher again. Right to re re uh, relearn the tools of ignorance, I guess. Yeah, right. And and I guess what is this? This is motivated by the lack of production they're getting out of the catcher spot. Yeah, Jason Castro has been terrible. Oh, Jason Castro. Yeah, sorry, Jason Castro. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I mean, what, what's the? I guess what's like the best case outcome? I mean, or it, especially in terms of Evan Gaddis's defense. What? Uh, what do we know about his defense? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think like the thing that is, I would say this isn't necessarily just about Castro. Is Gaddis has also been pretty bad, and he wasn't great last year. And as a low on base slugger who's DHing. He was probably pretty close to losing his job in the sense that, like, A.J. Reed, who's going to come up soon for the Astros, is likely a better hitter than Devin Gaddis right now, and Gaddis is kind of standing in his way. So if they were going to say, look, we're going to bench Devin Gaddis because he's just not hitting well enough to be a DH, then we either squander this guy and just have him as a pinch hitter, but maybe not a great pinch hitter because he strikes out so much, and so you're not going to send him up in a contact situation. So you just have him as, like, a send him up when you need a home run, maybe. Um, that's not a great use of Gaddis' skills. Let's put him back in the minor leagues, see if he can be a reasonable defensive catcher. And when he came up with the Braves in a short sample, he was his framing numbers were actually okay in terms of like receiving pitches and getting strikes with pitchers. He's never going to be a good catch and throw guy. He's not going to control the running game. He's not going to block pitches well. Like this is this guy's never going to be a defensive asset. But if the framing numbers are okay, you could maybe look at him and be like, he's going to be like a Hank Conger, except maybe you hope he hits better. And Conger, a guy who's uh, historically been uh, one of the worst catchers of all time at controlling the running game, but is still allowed behind the plate occasionally because he's got good framing numbers. And Conger was a member of the Astros not too recently, or not too long ago. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Astros were willing to live with the rest of the bad defensive uh, performance as long as Gaddis was okay at receiving pitches and getting strikes for his pitchers, and he hits. So, I mean, that's going to be the two-pronged thing is he's going to have to hit better, and he's going to have to show he can frame a little bit, and then they'll live with the running game going wild when he's back there. So you're saying if he could conger up some of Hank's yeah, catching skills? That was a bad pun there, Sestouli. Yes, it was. Is it as bad as Chris Mitchell's post from today where he says uh, no. Chesler late than never? Yeah, I wanted to hang myself on our bad <laughs> I, yeah. Nothing nothing will be worse than Craig Edwards' Aledmus Diaz headline. That was oh, like a yeah. low point in Fangraph's history. Yeah, it was. He was really he was really miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Delightfully miserable, though. Okay. No, no, just miserable. Okay, all right. Uh, you have fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank is, you. Yeah, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>